Cut, 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 cut! What the hell was wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. This is Roger. He keeps blowing his lines. Roger, what's this? A tweeting bird. A tweeting bird. Okay, let's all go. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie that at least one of us has never seen before. Uh, This is episode number 101. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis, and joining me this week, I have Emily. And Emily, you had never seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit before, correct? Never once. It was such a huge pop culture vision when I was a kid, but I never allowed to see it when I was little and never got around to it as an adult until now. So never allowed to see it when you were little. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about that. So tell me, tell me that story. Okay. So um, the movie came out when I was two, I think. So okay. I was born in 80, late 85, came out when I was two. And so like things back then stayed in the theater forever, remember? So you would oh, have yeah. like... First run would be at least six months, and then there would be like second run, third run, fourth, back in the old days, kids, Mm -hmm. when things would stick around for ages and wouldn't just go straight to VOD. So, you know, I remember it was still kind of like in theaters when I was starting to be like a conscious human being. And so like you could go and see it at like the third run, fourth run theaters. And of course, it's got cartoons in it. And Mm -hmm. so my siblings and I are just like, we have to go and see this. This looks wacky. And my mother was... The strictest person (laughs) about letting us watch anything. Mm. And so, like, even when I was a kid, we would be watching, like, Nickelodeon. And when Looney Tunes came on, my mom was like, too bet you can't watch this. It's too violent for you because you are a child and you will not understand that if you fall off of a cliff, you will die. Like, you know, (laughs) so it was just like she didn't want us learning the idea that, like, if you whack someone with a hammer, like, bad, you know, we'd just see Tweety Birds or whatever. Mm. So I wasn't allowed to watch anything as a kid because my mother apparently did not have very high confidence in our ability to understand, you know, object permanence and things like that. So, yeah, just straight up not allowed to watch it. Uh, For years and years and years. And you remember in the 90s when, like, the Warner Brothers store was, like, the cool store in the mall where you would go and, like, buy trinkets and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And there was all of this, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit stuff amongst the toys, amongst all the characters that I recognized. And I was like, I have to see this. And my mother was always, no, 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 no. And so now I'm a 35-year-old adult woman, and I'm like, no wonder she didn't let me watch this movie when I was a child. Oh, my God. So, yeah, all right. So Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out in 1988. Um, So I would have been six, seven years old at the time. Um, I did not see it in theaters only because at that point, um, even cartoons, I wasn't going to. This was, I had seen, like, my first memory of a movie theater was Spaceballs which I think was a year or two earlier than that. Um, Also not really kid friendly, but whatever, you know, Mel Brooks is fine. Um, So, but I did see it a couple years later when it was uh, finally getting onto home video release and Mm -hmm. I adored it as a kid. Um, But I, you know, I watched all the, the uh, Warner brothers cartoons and Tom and Jerry and all of that kind of stuff when I was that age. So my parents were, they were not super strict about the things that I could watch. One of my favorite films, and I've covered it on this show and I've talked about it on 
to anyone that will listen is a movie from uh, 1986 called Running Scared. And it stars Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. And it's a buddy cop movie from the 80s. Now, yeah. now I saw it uh, a few years later, but I watched it when I was way too young to be watching what is is an R-rated movie. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, but I loved it. But my parents, now when I talk to my mom, she's like, yeah, I should never have let you watch the things that you did when you were that age. But they, they also kind of let me sort of form my own opinions and, and made sure that I understood, like, from a very early age, okay, look, these are movies. This is fantasy. Yeah. These are, you know, cartoons aren't real life. You can't actually fall, have a, uh, you know, an anvil land on your head and you survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they let me watch all of that. So when this, when this hit, like, I loved this movie from when I was a kid until now. But as an adult, when I watch it now, I appreciate so much more about it from all sorts of aspects, not just the yeah. the mix of kid-friendly humor and adult-oriented humor, because there definitely is that. Um, but also, filmmaking-wise, I'm want to i going to get into a little bit and kind of nerd out. Yeah. Um, and story-wise, too, because this is a fun noir story yeah. That uh, yeah. that I think is actually a better noir story than I remembered it being. I haven't watched it for a few years, but I've watched this movie several times and I noticed this time around how much better that story is. And it is very influenced by Chinatown, which is a movie that mm -hmm. I do enjoy quite a bit. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so overall you, uh, having finally seen it at 35 for the first time, what'd you think as a movie? Was it, was it good? Well, yeah, no, it, it was fantastic. Um, it's weird because I do not immediately grasp onto things that are zany. Like, okay. I am not just like, a, um, I try to be funny, but kooky isn't usually my fave. And so it was starting out and I was kind of really put off by like the baby gag at the beginning and you know and and roger's whole thing is that he's essentially a goofy character and he's mm -hmm. like hurting himself and all of that stuff and um i am still a very sensitive person where i'm just like i know it's a cartoon i'm not crazy but i'm just like oh he's getting hurt you know yeah. like that's just something that really bothers me um but then by the time they got to the outside world and they pulled it back from it being uh, Mary Melody's sort of like zany cartoon and showing you the world. The magic of that was blissful of just seeing uh, Maroon Studios, which is I live in Los Angeles, so I recognize the building mm, okay. um, and what and seeing like a lot of the L.A. architecture just from that time. And um, just the, the I also write mystery novels set in 1950. So the 1947 noir aspect of it, um, Bob Hoskins is brilliant in this film. And I was reading the IMDb trivia before we logged on of just like the other people they wanted for that role wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been good just uh bob hoskins is brilliant in this and i just remember him from smee from uh mm -hmm. hook with yep. robin williams and like I, it's just it's a divine movie like it is just a truly well plotted well thought out artfully done just completely madcap bonkers crazy movie and really i is. liked it a lot <laughs> So you, you mentioned Bob Hoskins. I want to start there. So this okay. was the first thing I ever saw Bob Hoskins in. And it was several years later before I realized that he's not American, that he's English. Yeah. 
because yeah. I it, he did that that uh, hard boiled detective role and that accent so well. Mm-hmm. But you're mm-hmm. right; he is perfect for this movie. And I did. I also read a bunch of uh, some of the other people that they had considered for for Eddie Valiant. Mm-hmm. Wallace Shawn was one that interested oh, me because it's a strange idea to have Wallace Shawn. Yeah. This would have been, you know, he. I think Princess Bride was in 1987, so it would have been right in that same yeah. era. Bill Murray was one that apparently mm-hmm. Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg wanted. Um, that was the one I was thinking of where I was like, wow, that's weird. I mean, makes sense, but it's weird. It's a very different Eddie Valiant, for sure, mm-hmm. if you go with uh, with him. Um, but uh, Harrison Ford at one point, I, I, I get what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. But Sexy no. noir. Yeah, but no, <laughs> but no. doesn't doesn't uh, really do it for me. Uh, but man, just Bob Hoskins nails this role so well because he has this ability to be a little bit zany himself, and and the role of Eddie Valiant needs that. But he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He's not over the top zany. Yeah, yeah. He has that thing that um, I was just tweeting right before we hopped on about uh, Cary Grant. And you know how Cary Grant was a vaudeville circus performer Mm -hmm. before he became like a huge Hollywood leading man. And um, Bob Hoskins kind of has that like feeling of being a circus performer about him, but like straight man clown and not like zany clown. And he plays the victim of zaniness so well. Absolutely. And with the way that they did Roger Rabbit, you need mm-hmm. that, right? You need to yeah. have that foil um, be perfect. And he just just nails it. So mm-hmm. like, I, anytime anyone brings up Bob Hoskins, and I have loved him in just about anything I've ever seen him in, whether it was Smee and Hook, or mm-hmm. he did a, a movie a few years ago with Jet Li called um, Danny the Dog. It actually got re-released, um, or the American title was Unleashed. But he's okay. in. He's the uh, he's the heavy in that. He's the bad guy, and you know, so he's full on Cockney accent in that one. Just going, just chewing scenery cool. up, and he's amazing in it. Like he's that's what I like about him is he's got this range where he can be, mm-hmm. but still to this day it doesn't matter if somebody brings up Bob Hoskins. The first image in my head is him in that hat with the suspenders mm-hmm. and his bottle of whiskey and a in a um a shoulder holster, which mm-hmm. I th- thought was a, a great move. <laughs> He's carrying around whiskey with him at all times, like a exactly. true noir detective. <laughs> he has that thing about him that Bogey had too, which was like Bogey was not an attractive man. Like mm-hmm. he was made attractive by the fact that he was a very good actor and Lauren Bacall deigned to be with him. But like Bob Koskins had that sort of like, he, he's got that same kind of draw of like, it's the mystery, it's the dedication, it's just the grizzledness that you like so mm-hmm. much about him. And it fits so well with the noir detective because, yes, you do have other noir detectives who are supposed to be just drop-dead gorgeous. Like... um Maltese Falcon, you know, he's supposed to be, he's described in the book as a particularly attractive blonde Satan. And you're supposed to like love this guy so much. But Sam Spade, I'm sorry, the name escaped me and I was talking until I remembered. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but then when Bogey plays him, he's not sexy. And it's just one of those things that I really like in a detective 
of just like you're drawn to them, but it's not because he's Harrison Ford hot. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? Or even um, Bill Murray in the 80s had a certain sort of like goofy boyish cutesy charm when he was making, you know, like stripes and stuff like that, where he was just like, he was a goofy boy. Mm -hmm. And so like, of course you were drawn to him. He was a leading man in a way, but I really love Bob Hoskins in this and watching it of just him play against Christopher Lloyd um, was just dynamite. It was just, and Christopher Lloyd is one of my favorite actors of all time. I really, really loved him on Taxi. I watched mm -hmm. that weirdly when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and just Christopher Lloyd is one of my absolute favorite actors of all time. So watching him and Bob Hoskins just kind of like, Stop just short of chewing scenery with one another the entire time. <laughs> you know, uh, Christopher Lloyd goes full Christopher Lloyd. Oh, and Bob yeah. Hoskins is like, what? What am I supposed <laughs> to do with this the entire time? Well, and, you know, and a credit to Bob Hoskins, too, for doing so much acting against somebody who's not there. Yeah. That's really yeah. hard to do. Now, he did have um, Charles Fleischer on set to deliver lines, but he wasn't physically in front of him, even yeah. though... Fleischer was apparently dressed up like Roger Rabbit when he would be on set, even though How he wasn't going to be on that? camera. <laughs> so, but like, yeah, just, just to be able to do that at the minimal amount of acting that I've done in my life, um, mm -hmm. I have enough trouble acting at all, let alone acting against like what is essentially a tennis ball and a stick. Yeah, so, exactly. That was really, really good. Now, Christopher Lloyd, you brought up and who oh boy, like, I love Christopher Lloyd and he does, he gets to choose scenery in this, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. He gets to just go all for it. He does not get enough credit for being the actor that he is. I, I no, feel he doesn't. like people remember him as doc Brown, right? They remember mm -hmm. him as in this movie or in taxi, but he's really good. And God. I just feel like more people need to understand that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, my first uh, exposure to him was in Taxi. My mom loved Taxi. Um, you know, just the sitting down at the piano playing and saying, God, I must have had lessons is just one of the most brilliant lines and line deliveries <laughs> in cinema recorded moving picture history. I just love him so much. Um, but... You know, and then I remember him from Clue, another one of my absolute favorite yep. movies. And of course, I'm totally contradicting myself by saying, like, I don't like zany movies. And then I'm like, wait a second, Clue. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, um, I, yeah. You know. Uh, but no, he it, is a phenomenal actor. He a really phenomenal is. phenomenal actor. So he did a guest spot on, did you ever watch the show Fringe when it was on? Yes. Okay, so mm -hmm. he did a, he guested on an episode of that as an aging rock star. And he was so mm -hmm. good. He was so believable in that role. Um, it's things like that that, you know, kind of they counterbalance when he gets to go zany and over the top and be yeah. Judge Doom or be Krug from uh, Star mm -hmm. Trek Three, where he just gets to yeah. choose scenery and just be an evil guy. Um, but what I liked about him in this was he was playing a tune as a human and mm -hmm. trying to be human, but there's like all these, these warning signs and giveaways that he's a tune. And I don't know mm -hmm. how much of that did you pick up on, on this first watch? Like at what point were you um, starting to think maybe this guy isn't uh, just a normal person? I don't think I will fully admit to you that I am not anti-spoiler. I love spoilers because as someone who does write a lot of stuff, 
I like to see how the dots are connected. And okay. so um, I admit that I, I did not know going into it that he was a tune, but I was researching while watching the movie. And so I knew he was a tune before the big reveal at the end. Okay. Um, but I can I could see all the breadcrumbs of how they let us know that he was one just from the very, very beginning of him putting on that giant rubber glove before he dips the shoe in, in uh, oh God, I forgot the name of the, the goo. The dip. The dip. Monstrous, by the way. Monstrous. Oh, I was yeah. horrified oh. by that. Watching that poor shoe disintegrate, like I almost cried. I'm a 35 year adult year old adult woman. Like I almost cried. <laughs> well, and they they purposely made that shoe just the cutest damn thing possible. Oh, so, so you really felt yeah. for it. Yeah. So I didn't I had noticed you know, I've seen the movie enough times that I know he's a tune. But what I mm-hmm. noticed this time around that I maybe it was because I hadn't watched it for a few years or because the last time I watched it was uh, a DVD release as opposed to a little bit nicer, higher res um, stream. There's a line, his jawline, um, in the first scene you see him in, there's like this very faint lighting lightness along his jawline that looks like a mask. Mm-hmm. Oh, And how cool. his Adam's apple is fake. And if you like, oh if you God, start paying beautiful. attention to it, you realize he's wearing a mask. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I was like, oh, I've never noticed that in you know thirty something years almost of watching this movie. So I, I love that. But you're right, yeah. like the rubber glove or the fact that what they did, what was brilliant about it was they hid, they hid it well. Mm-hmm. In that he puts the glove on. Okay, well he's a tune, so obviously the dip's going to bother him. But he's putting the glove on it's because he wants to be, yeah. He wants to be safe. You know, there's the thing where he backs away from it when the barrel gets dumped over. Well, so is everybody else in the bar. So you don't yeah. think anything of that at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. it's great. One of the big ones for me was towards the end. Um, there's the big fight scene and one of the lenses of his glasses pops out and he's holding his eye. Mm-hmm. And it's because if you saw his actual eye, you would see that it was a tune eye. But of course, you're th- you're the entire time I was watching him, I was like, why is he holding his eyeball? That's such like a weird thing. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that it was because he would have cartoon eyes if he didn't have the dark glasses on. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that like his his costuming in that is very clearly pulled. Well, maybe not clearly pulled because I don't know the the time span of when it came out. But uh, the bad guy in the first Indiana Jones, the the mm-hmm. Nazi with the the coat hanger, oh, um, yeah. it's almost the exact same costume. Um, so you're thinking to yourself like, oh, he's just a real bad dude because he's very coded Nazi. Um, and uh, it, it, but as soon as I realized that a lot of it was um, tied to the fact that he was a tune, yeah. in addition to being a Nazi, um, <laughs> just an absolutely brilliant costuming and, and surprisingly subtle performance by Christopher Lloyd until he goes uh, full banana crackers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and there were other things too. Like apparently he would, try and not blink as he would try to blink as little as possible when his eyes could be seen on camera to Mm -hmm. to give like this weird weird uh feel to his um his performance his movements even like i noticed that this time around his movements are a lot stiffer than you would think but it's Mm -hmm. subtly done where it's it's more the movements of a cartoon in human form (laughs) so it's little things like that that the the filmmaking of this is amazing so robert zemeckis directed this He was, so, okay. First of all, did you know this was based on a book? No, I had no idea. Now that I do know, I'm totally going to do it on my show. (laughs) 
Yeah, I want to find the book and read it. So it's the book is called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? And it's very different. It's very oh. different. There's actually, um, so there is a YouTube account called Cinefix that will do a series called What's the Difference? Where they compare a book and a movie. And they don't, That's cool. they don't do it for a which is better. They just do, here's, here's what was in the book and what was different about the movie. And let's talk about them and see why things work in one medium versus another. Why you would make this mm -hmm. change, that kind of stuff. And the the what's the difference for Who Framed Roger Rabbit? They're like, honestly, we should do a what's the same because they just completely changed everything, uh, almost for this wow. for this story. But um, yeah, it, so the book was written in 1981, and almost immediately the rights were bought. And originally Zemeckis they wanted Zemeckis to direct it. The two the two guys that were working on the script, but Disney owned it at the time, and said, no, right. you, you're not good enough yet. Because all he had done to that point was used cars and like one, one smaller movie. Gotcha. After the success of Back to the Future, they're like, okay, now you can mm -hmm. now you can do this one. So clearly, you can handle batshit banana crackers. Yes. <laughs> content and make people like it. I'm sorry, I should have asked if I could curse. I apologize. That's all right. You're yeah. good. Um, but yeah, so he they they bring in Robert Zemeckis and they rewrite the script. Apparently, there was like forty something rewrites uh, to this script. They they were having at one point baby Herman was the bad guy. At one point, Jessica rabbits, the bad guy. Um, they, they really didn't quite know where they were going with it, but I, I, mm -hmm. I, I like where they ended up because they made a noir story with a Disney ending. Yeah. So it works yeah. that way where it is still family friendly enough that I mm -hmm. think granted, if it were to come out, say from like 1992 on, it would have been PG 13 instead of PG. Yeah, that's Easily. very true. Because um, the, the ratings were still a little looser back in 88. They, they let a lot more stuff go by. Um, but <laughs> Jaws was rated PG, if you think about it that way. <laughs> well, that was also pre-PG-13. So That's true. You know, because yeah. uh, Indiana Jones and the uh, Temple of Doom is rated PG. That's one of the movies <laughs> that actually got the PG-13 rating made because that movie scared the crap out of a lot of kids. <laughs> Um, now, so making this movie, they had basically had to make this movie twice. Um, yeah. if you're familiar at all, and I, you probably are, but for those listening animation, um, hand-drawn animation like this in 1988, they didn't have computers to do it. And they, it wasn't the same way that you could mix mixing live action and animation is not new. Not even, it wasn't even new in 1988. Like it had been done plenty of times prior to that. Um, but what they wanted was they wanted to break the rules of mixing animation and live action. So, you know, some of those rules are things like you don't move the camera a lot, right? Cause it's really hard to make sure the perspectives match up. There's a ton of camera movements in this. Um, they wanted to have as much interaction between the animated things and real life as possible, which mm -hmm. had to have been a nightmare. This movie took five months to shoot. It's an hour and 40 something minutes long. So it's not like it's a long sweeping epic, but yeah. everything that dealt with, um, the interactions they had to shoot multiple plates of, and then they went back through and hand animated the whole thing. And optically so printed work. it. Eight hundred and something thousand uh, cells were drawn for this, hand drawn. That is so much work. It really is. I can't imagine. 
And, and the other thing too, that I read that really kind of blew my mind. And I didn't think about this until I was kind of researching for the show today is because the way they had to do it, where they would shoot everything and then hand animate and, and fill it in, they can't change anything. Mm-hmm. So once they've shot the movie, that's it. You can't cut a scene because if you cut part of a scene, you've got to cut basically the whole thing. Yeah. It's really hard to make any, take anything out of this. So they pretty much would finish the movie and then go back in and redo the whole movie in yeah. animation form, yeah. which, you know, it's a, it's no wonder that the movie's budget, which was originally $50 million and Disney was like, yeah, it's a bit too much. Can we bring that down? So they, they brought it down to 30. And it ended up at 70. Yeah. 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 It ended up at 70, uh, which by some calculations was one of the most expensive movies of the 1980s. That doesn't surprise me. No, it did well. Yeah, Made over it did. 150 million at the box office and it's still 30 something years later, uh, still beloved. So, you know, it was worth the investment, but <laughs> holy crap. Now the animation director was Richard. Um, shoot. I have his name here. Uh, every frame of the movie that featured mixed animation uh, had to be, Oh, this was the other thing. Every frame that had mix, right? They had to print the frame out as a photograph and then draw the animation cells, lay it over top of that and then run it back through an optical printer. It's It's insane. Amount of work. Considering so much work. Yeah. And there's not a lot of scenes in this that don't have animation in them either. That's the other thing. Yeah. There's really not too many. Like, I can only think of one or two off the top of my head. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is actually probably my favorite scene in the movie, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, Richard Williams was the animation director for this. And uh, I he's notorious for being uh, rather meticulous. Um, I would imagine. His would big project. Yeah. His big project was a movie called The Thief and the Cobbler that he worked on for, it was like 20-something years. Uh, and never actually fully finished himself. Um, oh, wow. And what did get put out was butchered beyond belief because he had lost the rights to it, all sorts of... It, it's a crazy story, but he had, yeah. um, he was the lead animation director for this, and yeah, 80-something thousand uh, frames of animation were drawn for this movie for a, not an animated feature. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's just nuts. I don't... 326 yeah, like have- full-time animators, 326 people God. just in the anime. This, That's- it had the credits for this movie are forever long because there's so many animation department people to, to cover. Yeah. I wonder if it came out now cause they didn't always have the best animated film Oscar nom- category. Mm-hmm. I wonder where it would fall now. That's an interesting question because I mean, it, it is an animated film, but it's mm-hmm. not, a fully animated film either. Yeah. So I don't know. It should, this I mean, be one of the... it did win some, a bunch of technical Oscars and deservedly so because holy oh, crap, yeah. like yeah, just crazy to think about uh, all the work that had to go into this. Yeah. The music is dynamite too. Um, my husband's a composer, so I always like listen to the music and, mm. and it's, it's phenomenal for this. I don't know off the top of my head who the composer was. I'm going to look that up right now. I think it was Alan but... Silvestri. Oh, uh, that makes a lot of sense. He had done Back to the Future with Zemeckis the year before, or a couple yeah. years before. That makes a lot of sense. And it does, yeah, it, because it has his kind of feel to it. Yeah. And yeah, he's it good. I like, I like Silvestri a lot. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, I had some other notes here. Let's see if I can find mine. Um, okay, so I, I do want to talk about my favorite scene in the movie. Okay. Is actually when Eddie first goes into his office. So this is, mm-hmm. he goes into his office, he pulls the pictures down that he took, he's looking at them, he's reminiscing. Um, it's this really beautiful scene where he's reminiscing about his time on Catalina with uh, Dolores, and then he sees mm-hmm. the picture of his brother, he starts to get sad again, he's looking at all those, and then they have that nice shot where he looks across the desk, you see Teddy's desk, exactly how it was left with all the dust on it and everything. And then there's that mm-hmm. tracking shot, that very Zemeckis-style shot, right? He likes to do those. He, that's how he opened Back to the Future, where he's just mm-hmm. got this slow pan. And he pans along, and you get the newspaper clippings and the other pictures of him and his brother. You get Eddie's story mm-hmm. in this scene, and there is not one word uttered the whole time. Yeah. It's all you exposition, and you don't have to be told it. And I love that. Mm-hmm. It's so well done. And I just, I noticed it so much this time watching and how much I appreciated, like, just the, the filmmaking of that particular thing. Give us all this information. Now we know what we need to know about Eddie moving forward from here on out. And it doesn't have to be a person come in the room and say it. You know, prior to this, all we had gotten was his brother was killed by a tune. But mm-hmm. now we see not only was he killed by a tune, but they were, they were clowns. And they they loved working in Toontown and all that kind of stuff. So it's really, really cool. Is this... It was really brilliant. Go ahead. Oh no, I had noticed that when he was going into the office, that hit the nameplate for his 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 business was falling off, mm-hmm. and uh, there were Valancourt and Valancourt, and I needed to know where the other one was, and and that immediately leads to that tracking shot that you're discussing, and it just it explains so much. In just like really not very long, maybe 30, 45 seconds just of, of, of shot. And it's it's really, really brilliant. And it's one of those takeaways of um, things that screenwriters should learn very quickly. Um, I know they tell you not to put that much stuff. The old school way of thought was that you would not tell the director what to do in mm-hmm. your in your screen notes. But I think that that's one of those things that obviously has to be in a script of just like, because you're not explaining Eddie's uh, conflict in any other place. Mm-hmm. Very, very does even Dolores bring up his brother. Like it just doesn't happen. That had to have been in the script for them to to have that sort of set up to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where that collaborativeness, I think, too, can come into play. Because I know Zemeckis mm-hmm. was in on a lot of the rewrites, at least as far as like giving input. But it's visual, it's visual storytelling. And in a visual medium like film, you, I appreciate seeing that over just an exposition dump. Anytime. Mm-hmm. Anytime. Yeah. Um, Him and Dolores having a chat over the bar about what happened. Like, it's just... That's boring. You don't need it. And it's, kids it, aren't going to retain the information one way or the other. So, Right. And not only that, but it's it's not just that they won't retain it or that's boring, but it's also forced. Like nobody's mm-hmm. going to have that conversation that long after something happened. This is yeah. a much more natural way to give yeah. that information out where this world feels like a real world instead of yeah. a movie. And it means more to adults, too, because like how uh, like my father passed away a couple of years ago. How often do I sit down and have conversations about him exactly. with like people that I love? It, no, it's just something that you don't touch upon because, you know, it hurts. And so adults who love one another, those Dolores and Eddie do, you don't bring it up, mm-hmm. but it's still always there. So yeah. it was just a very adult way of handling that aspect of the story as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was like 
watching it again, I realized, nope, that is my favorite scene in this entire movie. And I love so much about it. Like, there's all the zany stuff that happens towards the end, and you get the fun set pieces, but that is my favorite bit of storytelling and just kind of movie-watching experiences. You give me all of that, and there doesn't have to be a single line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And you get you get so much out of... And there, again, is Bob Hoskins' performance is just spot on. He goes from gruff to reminiscing to sad, mm-hmm. believably. And I love the idea that that it's the whole night that that pan is happening. So when we get back to him and the bottle of whiskey is empty and he's passed out at the mm-hmm. desk, like I just, all of that, that was so, so well done. So have to bring that up. That's easily my favorite moment in this movie. Um, did you happen to, to, I mean, did you have a favorite moment while you were watching it or would you think back on it or would you have to watch it more than once? To me, some of the cleverest writing was when he was interacting with old tune stars versus the new tune stars. And one of the things that really, really grabbed me was when he goes to the club and he's interacting with Betty Boop. Mm-hmm. And um, to know the history of Betty Boop as vaguely as I do, like she was pretty risque. Like she was based on like real sex pots of the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she was just a very, very sort of risque very weird way for Hollywood to interact with female sex symbols and to have her be relegated to being the cigarette girl Mm -hmm. at the club was something that was very, very galling to me because when I think of 1947, I don't think of there being new anything. Like I was born in 1985. It's 2010. (laughs) Like I don't think of there having been a whole lot of culture before 1945, especially movie and TV culture. A lot of like the 1920s, 30s, 40s, it blends together now. Mm -hmm. But to know that in 47, when this movie is taking place, Betty Boop was washed up by that time. Um, is is really very strange. And then to have all of these human men um, going completely gaga for Jessica Rabbit while she's, you know, on stage. And poor Betty Boop is just left in the shadows to be a cigarette girl and to, like, get tips where she can. It was just a very um, interesting way for this movie to sort of interact with the, like, the aging out of female characters and mm-hmm. female actresses as Hollywood does. Obviously this is not like a movie that's setting out to make commentary about like feminism and Hollywood and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but it does in a very, very deliberate way. Um, and that was something that really stuck out to me of just like, uh, you know, Valancourt's just like, Betty, I haven't seen you in a while. And she's just like, wow, someone's actually excited to see me. Mm-hmm. Like, she was touched. She was really yeah. happy to see Eddie. Um, and then when Eddie also goes gaga for Jessica Rabbit, she's hurt that like his attention is drawn away, but she knows it's going to be drawn away because yeah. there's no way you can compete with Betty Boop and Jessica Rabbit. Right. And, um, you know, as <laughs> as a 35-year-old woman who lives in Los Angeles, I understand <laughs> the concept of, like, the hot young thing, the, the ageism that is just so baked into this city everywhere, but really in this city. Um, like, it was a very deft 
way for a whole bunch of male writer and directors to really address like what was happening in the dynamics and the changing of old and new Hollywood, even though 1947, we think of it as old Hollywood. Right. Yeah. And in the moment, Betty's is old Hollywood. What's what's curious about that for me or not curious, but interesting for me is I never made that connection before. Really? Like I kind of. I knew who Betty Boop was. I knew uh, I, I sort of got it, but I never fully made that connection. Earlier, uh, or I guess late last year, earlier this year, I watched uh, Sunset Boulevard for the first time. Oh, God, I love that movie. I had never seen it before. <laughs> All I knew going into it was the, the, the famous line, the I'm ready for my close-up. Mm-hmm. That movie blew me away. I love that movie. Dynamite. It is so good. And now, you know, and that, is so much about aging out in Hollywood and old Hollywood and mm-hmm. all of that. So when I was watching Ro- Who Framed Roger Rabbit today, I noticed that for the first time. I'm like, oh, okay. Now I get, because yeah. I just thought of when I was younger, I, I knew who Betty Boop was, but I didn't put it into the context right. So I just thought, oh, mm-hmm. she's just another cartoon character that happens to be working now. I didn't make the yeah. connection that, like it just didn't, didn't, register in my brain that no 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 she's literally aging out and this is the only work she can get now and and i know there's the line you know well work's been tough since cartoons went to color and she's still black and white but yeah i'd never like fully made that connection until now so it it, i like that too that's some great subtle stuff that whole scene in the ink and paint club is very subtle um Mm. imagery uh to the whole segregation thing of clubs that would not allow black people into the club but they could work yeah. there. So this yeah. was no tunes are allowed in the club, but they can work there. Yeah. I rem- I noted that no tunes were allowed in when I was watching the movie. I'm so sorry. My dog is running by my studio. That's okay. um, I noticed the, um, the, the commentary of no tunes are allowed in, but I hadn't quite put the two and two together that it was a commentary on segregation. Um, but I did notice just the, the severe, um, a uh, uh, subtext of the fact that like the doorman is a very large uh, a black monkey mm-hmm. and it's like a lot of very it's playing with a lot of racial stereotypes in just dis- really disgusting racial stereotypes um, in the fact that also the singer that everybody is going to see is a sexy white woman but everybody who's working in the club is either in black and white or white or um an animal and it's repulsive Mm -hmm. yeah so i i appreciate what they were going for there what they were trying to Mm -hmm. do and again for 1988 like you you don't so uh, oftentimes you don't think about making a statement like that being something that's been and i think this the sad part about it is we're still having to deal with yeah 30 something years later yeah, I, we, I mean, we should they, never have, but yeah, they knew that it was happening. Like, mm-hmm. it, this is just one of those things, too, where you think about the fact that the guys who made this film are now considered like established Hollywood guys that nobody questions, like Steven <laughs> Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis. And it's just like, you knew this was happening 30 years ago and you made a commentary on it. Why'd you stop, buddies? Like, I that's a solid question for someone like Steven Spielberg, but. Let's see if anybody can ask you. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's tough. It, it's tough too because he has done a lot 
uh, yeah. to, to try to bring some of this stuff to light and try to make some changes, but yeah, why, why not continue that? I don't know. Um, but just overall, like, you know, I mentioned the 80 something thousand frames and, and all the, oops, that's not the one I wanted. Can't find my window. There it is. Um, but just, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around the idea of making a movie like this, uh, and coming up with this concept. And it just, it just blows me away that they pulled this off in the first place. Um, oh, (laughs) I love IMDb trivia. I love IMDb trivia because so much of it is just like, what? Yeah. Sting was considered for the role of Judge Doom. No, I don't think I don't think I buy that one. No, That's however, weird like that is a uh, that kind of trivia always cracks me up. You know, it's the the joke is that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone were considered for every movie role from 1984 to like 94. Mm-hmm. Um, Stallone would have been a good doom. He could have. Uh, Roddy McDowell, I think, actually could have been a pretty good doom. He mm-hmm. was considered apparently. Um but there was uh there was a trivia one and it, the other IMDb trivias that crack me up are when they just somebody decides that they have to put in like well Christopher Lloyd and so and so were also in this movie together 15 mm-hmm. years later it's like that has nothing to do with this movie whatsoever thanks for playing um, yeah uh what was it i was going to man i Charles Fleischer that's what it was Charles Fleischer as Roger Rabbit so he is kind of a weird dude, isn't he? Uh, to to dress up like Roger Rabbit and be on set for all of his scenes, knowing and, and being told, you're not going to be on camera. You know this. But that's how he could get into character. He also did the voice of Benny, the cab, and a couple, couple other smaller voices. Mm-hmm. Um, he just... Boy, was he having fun as Roger. Like... He gets to just go crazy because Roger. Yeah. So Roger is like he's the he's in the title, right? He's sort of the main character, but it's really Eddie's story. Mm-hmm. Um. So Roger is more of a supporting character, which I think in a way just gives uh, Fleischer uh, the the opportunity to go completely zany and just go off the wall because they didn't. I don't think the filmmakers wanted to have him. They wanted him to be his own creation, his own character. Yeah. So he's got some Disney parts to him. He's got some Warner Brothers parts to him and a lot of Tex Avery in there too. I actually noticed that the opening cartoon reminded me very much of old Tex Avery cartoons. Mm. Um, and it just the the feel that it had. But Fleischer, I really dug Roger for some reason. It, as annoying as he can be, it never gets to a point where I can't handle it. And that's tough to do for me with a character like this. I don't know if it's the same for you or not. Um, it's difficult. What Roger reminded me a lot of, and um, please don't take this as like a sort of like snobbishness thing, but part of living in LA is dealing with people who have never really worked any other job. Mm-hmm. And so they think that everything they do is normal and you're just sit there and you go, no, <laughs> no, you're not allowed to act like this. If you're like 
working at Target. Like that's not normal <laughs> behavior. Um, and Roger was very, very close to that. Obviously in cartoon rabbit form, but very much like this understanding of like never turning it off, mm-hmm. never knowing that like your behavior on set or your behavior as Roger Rabbit, like capital R, capital R, Roger Rabbit, is not normal outside of that world. And that is very, very accurate um, to the point that it was really annoying. <laughs> Where you're just sitting there waiting for him just to like realize any of the actual peril that he's in, that it's not staged peril, that like he and his wife are about to die. And he just like, it just never gets through. And you're just like, oh my God, to the point where you're just like, oh, I've met that guy in real life. (laughs) (laughs) It's horrible. See, so that is, that is another thing I love about doing this show is getting these other perspectives. Like I wouldn't have thought that being that I don't, I don't have a lot of experience with uh, a town like in LA where you get that. So that makes perfect sense. Cause you're right, Rod. Now, part of it is that this world that they're in tunes are virtually indestructible. Yes. So very true. Um, you know, I, I think some of it comes from that, but you're right. Roger just can't ever shut it off. He is Roger rabbit a hundred percent of the time, no matter what he's doing, he's flubbing lines and he doesn't know what he, you know, he doesn't, Yeah. he just doesn't know how to act in our world as opposed to tune town. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it, it was very the the juxtaposing of Toontown, not so much as Toons always being zany and kooky, but mm-hmm. just the fact that like Toon physics and Toon um, Toon logic still mm-hmm. rules there, as opposed to like even though there's a straight human human standing there, they have to abide by Toon logic yeah. in order to interact with it. Um, I thought that was just dynamite of like the, the the supremacy of the human does not is not real in this movie of at no point are the humans the 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 best fitted character mm-hmm. in the story yeah. like eddie valancourt is always at a disadvantage because he is mortal yeah it's awesome it really yeah i i Watching it again, I want to live in that world. I want to be in the world where tunes are just actors in. Now, in the book, the difference was they weren't actors in films. They were um, actors in comic strips. And oh, so they would pose and they would they would take the photo and then that would be the comic panel. And Horrible. I, I thought like that, that was kind of cool. The other thing that they did take out from the book that I thought would have visually been really cool to see, but there's no way in hell they could have animated this in 88, was in the book, when the tunes speak, they actually speak, and you get a mm-hmm. talk bubble. And then oh, the talk I bubble falls. That. So there's just All like the talk bubbles littered everywhere. And oh my God, I love that. Like that would have looked amazing, but there's no way they could have. They They were yeah. already like... Apparently, at one point, Judge Doom had a um, an uh, animated like pet vulture that sat on his shoulder, and they were like, "Yeah, we're not we're not doing that because they were gonna have they were gonna, Judge Doom was gonna have the pet vulture and seven weasels because he was gonna oh, be like Snow them. White and the Seven Dwarfs, and they ended up cutting two of the weasels and the vulture, and they're like, "We need to <laughs> this is too much to animate. We got we got <laughs> enough as it much. is." I love the idea of the talk bubbles falling. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you watched on Netflix yet. There's that new there's that new miniseries with Martin Scorsese talking to Fran Lebowitz, 
mm-hmm. it's called Pretend It's a City. Um, it's very weird, as you can imagine. Um, but at some point in one of the later episodes, Fran is talking about how there's no newspapers in New York anymore. And how like when you used to walk around the city because you would only get news from newspapers, there would be just newspaper everywhere, just like in the gutters, oh, on yeah. stuff, just tumbleweeds of newspaper. And so I'm imagining this movie set in 1947 where there's speech bubbles lining the ground as though there used to be newspapers just, you know, tumbleweeding everywhere. And that is just a visual I really like. Yeah. Um, I wish they had had like kind of a little bit more access to computer animation because they probably could have pulled that off um now with more modern technology but obviously you just can't do that with the limitations of actual people's hands yeah with hand-drawn like i mean they would have had to have easily doubled the number of animators they had and they were already at 300 plus um which is like every animator in the city yeah that's just uh so uh but yeah charlie now i it's funny. I, I always recognize Charles Fleischer's voice mm-hmm. for Roger Rabbit. And I've seen him in other stuff. And he is, uh, Stephen in our chat room brings up, he's a nutball in real life, but like in the best way. Like he's just zany. Gotcha. He's a kooky guy. But his face, I will always remember from the movie Zodiac. And you want to talk about going to complete opposite end of the spectrum. His small little, uh, almost cameo role in Zodiac, he is as subdued and like monotone as you can get. And he's creepy because like, Oh, it's. And so every time I see his face, that's all I can think of. So I see a picture of him and I'm like, Oh, it's that creepy dude from Zodiac. But wait, it's also Roger rabbit. And I have trouble like bringing both of those into focus in my brain. (laughs) It's really difficult. Um, But yeah, I just want to live. I want to live in this, this version of Los Angeles in the forties, I think would just be amazing. You've got the red car going everywhere. I love the Mm -hmm. scene in the beginning when he runs up to it and the guy's closing the door and he pulls the check out like the $50 check. Mm -hmm. It's like, get out of here. What am I supposed to do with this? (laughs) So he hops on the back of it with the kids and then the kids are giving him cigarettes, which cracked me up too. Again, stuff that stuff that wouldn't fly making the movie today. Like, you couldn't, you really couldn't get away with, Disney wouldn't no. do it for sure. No, no, no. Um, it is nice to know. I will let you know that uh, a lot of LA streets still have streetcar tracks running up and down them because our street maintenance is terrible. And also there was a lot of streetcars. Um, you can find them all the time in downtown and you can find them in parts of Hollywood as well. So that's no. fun. I had to ask. I was like, are there still streetcar tracks on Hollywood Boulevard? And my friends were like, I don't think so, but there are some on Sunset. That's yeah, really and fun. apparently for the movie, the the streetcars weren't electric. They were normal wheeled thing, and then they just laid laid like stickers down, basically, gotcha. or metal plates that's down. But, but yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's that stuff. There, I, I love noir in general. There's just something fun about the that style of of stuff. So it was really cool to see um, kind of all all the noir things that they would do there. I also love. So this is a Disney film. This is Touchstone Pictures. <laughs> they made a deal with Warner Brothers, and basically they they asked Warner Brothers, "Hey, can we have Daffy? Can we have Bugs Bunny? Put him in this movie. You know, it's going to be animated." Da da da. And Warner Brothers was like, "Fine, but we want final approval on what they look like." And we want equal time with our characters and Disney characters. That's awesome. So Warner Brothers wanted the versions of Bugs and Daffy that appeared in the movie 
to be the contemporary versions for marketing mm -hmm. purposes. The filmmakers wanted the correct or time period accurate version of Bugs and Daffy and, and such. Um, and so what I read was what they did was they sent over for approval uh, footage that had the contemporary looking ones while they were using the older ones, which I think is very Disney. Yeah, it's very, very. Uh, but it, you know, it, it works. It looks so much better to have the 1947 version of uh, yeah. Bugs Bunny there with Mickey. And that was the other, that was the reason why you see Donald and Daffy in the same scene and Mickey and Bugs in the same scene is so they have the same amount of screen time. That's so cool. And it's so. like the only time that Bugs Bunny and uh, Mickey Mouse have ever been on screen together, correct? Yeah. Yep. And uh, they did it with Tinkerbell and Porky Pig. Yep. Right at the end. Mm -hmm. They both get to do a sign off. They did get Mel Blanc to do voices, which was great. This is one of the last things Mel Blanc ever did because I think he yeah. passed away like the next year. Yeah. I actually and, remember when he died. My my dad was like very upset. Yeah, I do too. Um, because I, you know, having grown up watching all those, I remembered getting told at, you know, eight or eight or so years old that Mel Blanc passed away, the guy who did all those voices. And it just, mm -hmm. even back then, I appreciated voice actors. <laughs> so. Yeah. But, um, and I did read, he did the voices for all the characters that he normally would do, except for the, there was like one of the woohoos from Daff or from Daffy Duck. He couldn't really do it anymore. So they had someone else do yeah. that. And then he couldn't do Yosemite Sam. Oh, I'm sure that must that take was, so much energy. Yeah. So they had somebody else do Yosemite Sam. Um, but they brought in, uh, Jim, uh, Jim Cummings has a voice in mm -hmm. the background somewhere in there. They had whoever... I can't think of the name now, but whoever was doing the voices of Donald and Goofy and whatnot at the time were doing Mickey um, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all doing the voices for this. So they really went all out to make sure that even uh, Betty Boop, the the woman yeah. that was Betty Boop's voice in 1939 was doing the her voice Boop. in this. So That's so cool. That you know, is so cool. I love that. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I can't say enough good things about this movie. I, I am so glad that you enjoyed it. And this was it a fun was one. Really lovely. Yeah, it was. Thank it was great because you, so you brought this up. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going through all the streaming services, and uh, I will be honest with you: like, there ain't that much on Disney Plus I want to watch. Like, people <laughs> do not remember that. Like, all the Disney live action movies are freaking weird and absolute clunkers. Like, could you imagine? Like, rewatch like the Apple Dumpling Gang or something like that now. And so I was going through Disney Plus of going like, what on this godforsaken thing have I not seen but actually want to sit through? <laughs> um, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit came up. And uh, what's really funny is that my husband, he's a little bit older than me, just like a year and a half or so. And he was like, I can't watch that with you. I was like, what? Why? Like, what? He goes, one time when I was uh, like in Sunday school, they didn't know what to do with us. And it was right after the movie came out on VHS. So they played Who Framed Roger Rabbit for his Sunday school class. And he was like, it was such a weird experience because like they put like all the ages of the kids like in the same room. So like even like the newborns. So oh, he was wow. like, it's not like baby barf. And you're watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit in this like hot church room. Oof. And like they didn't even get through the whole thing. So he was just like, I've never seen the movie all the way through. And every time I see Roger Rabbit, all I can think of is this horrible experience oh, from like no. Texas Sunday school. And so I was like, 
okay, I will watch it without you. <laughs> but now I have to get him to watch it because it's actually really amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can't can... let it be ruined for him anymore. No, not at all. He's got he's to watch it and see see how great it is and and understand why a lot of kids um, were traumatized by Judge Doom as a kid. Yeah. Because the yeah. whole thing where he gets run over by the steamroller and then pops back up, that, that, that'll screw you up. That was rough. That was rough at eight yeah. years old. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that was one of the big questions I had of just like, what age group was this actually made for? Like 12 year olds, 14 year olds? Because I can't see any older teenagers being really into it. And then like younger kids, like were definitely traumatized by it. And like as a 35 year old, I like it a lot, but it is still like very much a kid's movie. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this was like the beginning of making movies for like 12 to 14 year old boys. Yeah. In fact, yeah, and, and and you mentioned older teens. The first test screening for it was a bunch of eighteen and nineteen year olds, and they all hated it. And half of them I'm walked sure. out. And Zemeckis was like, "Perfect, I'm not changing a thing." So apparently, he was going for the slightly younger kids. Which, okay, you know, it, okay. it works. Like I was probably right in the target audience when it came out. When when I finally yeah. got to see it, because it was it had to have been whenever it hit you know home video. So probably 1990. Right. So I was yeah. just hitting nine, 10 years old. So I'm right at the cusp it's of where perfect. they were going for. And yeah, yeah. It, it hit perfect for it's me. It's dynamite. It's dynamite. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, if you haven't seen it before, what are you doing? Um, yeah. let, let's Sorry. fix that. Don't, don't be Emily. Fix that. Watch the movie. <laughs> the takeaway from every time I talk about movies. <laughs> don't be Emily. <laughs> Watch it and enjoy it. And if you haven't watched it in a few years, watch it again because it holds up. It's 32 years old now and it's still good and still worth watching now. It's it's funny. The jokes land. The mm-hmm. references are good. So, mm-hmm. And Jessica is a surprisingly well-rounded character. Like I just remember her being like the sexy, sexy, sexy thing. Like that was just like on Mudflap. She's practically a sentient Mudflap girl. But mm-hmm. she's actually really cool like she's a really really well done female character so round of applause for them for that yeah i mean it's again that's not something that you would expect watching Mm -hmm. going into this movie um and it's something that i appreciate uh so much more now when i watch it uh, than i ever ever could have as a kid so uh it's it's nice yeah it's definitely it's one worth watching i'm glad that you got to watch it and you got to enjoy it so that was that was really cool. Um, now you have a podcast of your own that you do. I do. So I what do. is that, and where can people find it? Um, may I curse because the title has a curse in it? It is the title of your show. Yes, you may. Okay, thank you. Um, it is called Fuckboys of Literature, or on most podcasters, FBOL. It's a comedy podcast about books and the most toxic people of literature. I promise you it is not an academic show. We are uh, we like to make fun of the characters that everyone hates. Uh, you can find us on all podcatchers under the letters FBOL, because we are not allowed to use our full title on most <laughs> podcatchers, or at Fuckboys of Lit, that's B-O-I-S dot com. That's very cool. Um, yeah, I want to say thank you for coming on this week, for for agreeing to do my silly little show here, but also to, to watch a movie and, and just come talk to me about it. That's great. I, I had a good time. You're definitely, well, we must have you back 
and we'll do another movie. Maybe find something that you love- really enjoy that I haven't seen. That's always a fun one oh, for me to do too. That'll be cool. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And thank you for getting me to watch a movie that I wasn't sure about. Um, <laughs> I, I'm notoriously bad about sticking with the things I know I like. So I appreciate it. And you've added something to the list of things I know I like. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I I have found doing this show that sometimes stepping out of the comfort zone and watching something that you normally wouldn't. Um, So the examples I like to give for that were Sunset Boulevard. Not because I don't like older films. It's just one that I just never watched. And someone's like, we should watch that. No, it's weird, but it's good. It's really good. (laughs) Amelie was another one that I wouldn't have sought out to see on my own. I have now seen it and I adore it. It is a great movie. Um, so it, yeah, getting to sometimes step out of that, uh, that comfort zone and watch something new that maybe you're just not hundred percent sure on. Um, it's big reason why I do this show. So again, thank you. Thank you for coming on. This was a ton of fun. We'll do it again. Absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, if you think of something you want to cover, you let me know and, uh, we'll do that. But I, so this show I record Sunday nights at, on Twitch, uh, I live streamed twitch.tv slash tv's travis and then it comes out as a podcast on wednesdays you can get it anywhere um you get podcasts wait you haven't seen if you watch the show uh live or if you um even even if you just watch it live and don't subscribe if you want to go and leave uh, a review anywhere that you get podcasts that helps it helps a lot because it makes the show more discoverable so i've been doing 101 shows now which is I never thought I'd hit the century mark, but here we are, um, and still going strong. Next week is going to be a fun one. Steven, who's in the chat room right now, is going to come on, and he's never seen The Usual Suspects. We're fixing that next week. We're watching that movie. I adore that movie. There are some problematic parts of it now we're going to probably talk about, but the movie itself, very, very good. So I cannot wait to talk to him about that one. So that's going to be next week, The Usual Suspects with Stephen from uh, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. I'm looking forward to that. But, pardon me, until then, just remember to enjoy your movies. Uh, And look, the world is crazy right now, so let's just be kind to everybody, all right? Be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>